Today on Fifth and Mission, police secrets and police transparency. Starting January 1st, police records long kept secret are being disclosed under a landmark law called Senate Bill 1421. There are records on police shootings, on sexual misconduct, and dishonesty by officers. Megan Cassidy, a staff writer who covers law enforcement, joins us to talk about the first months of the law. This is like reporter junk food. I mean, it, it's all the stuff that, that we've been deprived for so long just coming at us in <laughs> one fell swoop. What we're finding out and why police are fighting back. We'll talk to Megan right after this. Megan Cassidy, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. So I should say that Megan Cassidy is a law enforcement reporter at The Chronicle, and she is running point for us on SB 1421, which is this new uh, police records law where we're getting to see uh, a lot of disciplinary cases and use of force cases that we haven't in the past. So, Megan, I wanted to start out by asking you the history behind the police records law. Why is there so much secrecy around them? So there's kind of an interesting history here. Um, California has been um, known to have some of the most private police personnel records um, in the country. And it started actually, it was rooted in a move to promote transparency that kind of ended up backfiring for uh, for decades. So um, back in the 1970s, there was a guy who got um, pulled over and arrested by four Los Angeles County deputies. Um, the defendant was charged with battery against the deputies, but he said that he was acting in self-defense and uh, tried to get all of these deputies' records to be able to make a case for himself. Uh, the sheriff at the time uh, refused to turn them over, and the defendant took the case to Supreme Court. So the court actually ruled in favor of the defendant, and um, which would be which would force police departments um, across the state to turn over personnel records. Um, but this led to um, what was at least a rumored widespread uh, record shredding movement um, from police departments, worrying that they would have to turn in all of their personnel files. Uh, and so because of that, in 1978, uh, Governor Jerry Brown signed a law that required police to maintain those personnel records for at least five years. Um, but at the same time, that law also restricted the access to the records, and at times prosecutors even c couldn't uh, get access to them, and uh, that's kind of what started this uh, secrecy through the last, what, four decades. So if you wanted to know, for example, if an officer had dishonesty in their past, if an officer had ever uh, been accused of uh, using undue force, would you be able to? Mm, not really. Um, there were a couple loopholes for a while, um, like with um, some cities, they had citizen police commissions that some sometimes would allow access to um, any sort of police misconduct. Uh, but even later on, the courts ended up um, closing those in, in favor of secrecy for police personnel records. Uh, another way that we could find some access to them would be through uh, civil court findings. Um, but even those were pretty few and far between. So over the years, who tried to change this? Who tried to open up these records? Yeah, so I mean, over the past, uh, at least from what I know, the decade or so, there have been some uh, Democratic lawmakers who have tried to um, broadly open up these records. Uh, but those never even made it to uh, the governor for a signature. Uh, there was a lot of pushback from some very powerful um, law enforcement unions. What is the union argument that these records shouldn't be public? 
police unions feel that because their profession is very dangerous, this could um, open officers up to being targeted. Um, but, you know, on the other hand, police watchdogs feel that this is such a powerful job that it is a matter of public interest. And, you know, in almost any public facing profession and medical legal communities, there's a governing board that makes some disciplinary records available. And that just wasn't true for California police. All right. So the police unions were against it. They represent the officers. What about the chiefs and what about others? Um, you know, the, the chiefs actually never really weighed in as, as much as I think you would expect. Um, the unions have really taken a lead role in, in their efforts to push back. Okay, so SB 1421 comes along by a local senator, Nancy Skinner. Uh, what is 1421 and what does it do? It is a more narrowly defined um, police transparency law than other efforts. And that was done by design um, to really to try to give it a shot at passage. Um, so what it does is it opens only some personnel records that um, lawmakers deemed really the most important for the public to know. So that's records including um, sustained findings of sexual assault, sustained findings of dishonesty while on the job. So and when, would... when you say sustained findings, you're talking about by internal affairs? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, so if, you know, somebody, if internal affairs found that somebody was, um, you know, uh, planting evidence or, or uh, committing false arrests, but they appealed it and then the appeal won, that's not a sustained finding. Got it. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, th so those are the only two misconduct findings. Um, oh, and I should also say that sexual assault only applies to members of the public. So if there was like some sort of allegation of uh, sexual harassment within the department, that actually doesn't count. That cannot, that isn't revealed. Uh, and then the other side of it is use of force records. So it's involving uh, use of force involving a firearm or any other sort of like critical use of force incident that involves like a serious injury or death. Okay, so 1421 goes into effect. Um, what was that like in your in your job? Obviously, you, you were preparing for it. Um, what's happened since January 1st? Oh, yeah. I mean, this, this is like reporter junk food. I mean, it, it's all the stuff that, that we've been deprived for so long just coming at us in <laughs> one fell swoop. Uh, so my, my colleagues and I, and as well as civil rights organizations and several other media outlets, just filed massive requests for records um, that we... It, it was kind of funny, though, because we don't know what we don't know. Um, some of these cases, like, we may have never even heard about when they were going on because they weren't subject to any sort of citizens review board or the citizens review board, uh, you know, was already private at the time. Um, so this was just, we're just kind of sitting there and waiting. We don't know what, what to expect. For those that don't know, what does an operation like that look like in a newsroom when you're putting out these kinds of requests? Is there a, a team of reporters? Yes. I mean, like, well, if you, if you had a camera on us, it would be actually very boring. We're sitting at a computer <laughs> and we're typing up a Word document based on a template that we, we have used dozens of times before and emailing it to every agency. And so it's been three and a half months now yeah. um, of requests. What have you learned so far? Um, a, a couple of things that, that struck me as pretty interesting. Um, 
Fremont was uh, one of the first agencies to release at least an index of the records. And, you know, the index should be an exhaustive list of anything that falls under this law. Um, we saw a couple of cases of uh, sexual misconduct that, that got some people fired um, that we didn't know about before. Um, there, uh, there was Richmond released their records a couple of days ago. And uh, I don't know if Bay Area, if people here were in the Bay Area a few years ago, they'll remember that Richmond was uh, one of the agencies that was embroiled in this huge sprawling sexual abuse scandal involving a uh, teenage girl who had sex with um, a couple of dozen police officers in exchange for police protection. Um, and what it showed us there was really after the city had said they were going to either fire or um, or discipline about a dozen officers, there were only two that came up in these records. And one was for a sexual misconduct allegation or sustained finding. Another one was for dishonesty. But it really leaves open a big question. If officers that were accused of either um, se uh, sexually abusing this teenage girl or of helping to cover up, um, if they weren't found uh, to have any su sustained findings of dishonesty or sexual assault, what were they punished for? So let me get this straight. These cases that you're seeing so far, these are older cases. They can go back a number of years. Yeah, yeah. And um, they just weren't disclosed at the time. Yes, yeah. And so it, it is kind of interesting to write these stories, right? Because most of the time we deal in the business of new news. And now it's, it's kind of funny, like, well, how do I frame a story when it happened four years ago? So is the story learning about what officers did in the past is the story learning about what officers did when they used force or shot someone, or is the story about how the agency uh, took care of those cases, how the agency investigated their own? I think it, it's a mix of both, but but I would argue in favor of the, the latter, that I think that this has become really revealing um, as to how police police their own. And uh, some of the chiefs uh, or brass that I've talked to are actually very in favor of this law because they want to show that they pick out the bad apples and that they can be trusted to police their own. Have all of the police agencies responded to our records requests and are they handing over documents? Um, not yet. Um, I would say that at this point, most uh, cities and counties have said they intend to cooperate and, and hand over the records, but there are redactions that need to be done. They need to figure out where all these records are. Um, other cities and counties have held off because of pending court cases, and uh, those cases have been brought to courts because of the city or county's uh, law enforcement unions. And what are those unions arguing in those cases? So they're trying to say that the law uh, should not apply to, quote unquote, retroactive records. So that's really any record or any case that happened before 2019. Um, that was not really what the intent of the law um, was made for. Um, Nancy Skinner, the author, um, has written a letter clarifying that this, no, this law applies to all records that are currently in the possession of the department. And we had a court decision just recently that, that cleared that up. Yeah, yeah. Well, there have been several court decisions, and um, I, I would, I'm pretty sure all of them have been in favor of transparency. Uh, there was one that I know of in uh, Ventura County that uh, at least held off on making a, a decision and kind of deferred to the appeals court in that case. Uh, but there was a recent appeals court decision that um, basically affirmed that all records prior to 2019 are still fair game. Let me get this straight. The unions have been fighting on behalf of the officers to try to make sure that the retroactive records aren't made public. 
And the departments have been waiting to see the result of the court decisions in those cases. In a lot of cases, that is correct, yes. But so far, the courts are saying that you do have to release these records and will have to do so moving forward unless we get some other decision. That's correct. Okay. Okay, so how are the big cities responding in the Bay Area? Oakland, how are they responding? San Francisco. Uh, In San Francisco, uh, they were fighting it in pretty much the exact same way everyone else was. The unions were saying that it shouldn't apply retroactively, uh, but the city has indicated that they will start um, releasing records soon now after the appeals court decision. Oakland has always said that they plan on releasing the records, but they're voluminous. They need time to find them, you know, perhaps to redact sensitive information. Um, but we actually have started seeing some coming out of Oakland. You've been you've been writing about uh, Oakland Police Department this month. Yeah. And you've been writing about the shooting of Joshua Pollock by officers last year. Yes. And um, your reporting has uh, touched on the fact that the court-appointed monitor for the department has taken issue with that shooting. Right. And, and actually, Oakland said that they released that report as part of their interpretation of how 1421 should be applied. 1421, as I said, applies to use of force incidents, and this was a fatal shooting from last year. Pretty controversial. The guy was asleep um, right before he was shot. Uh, And Oakland police, because of 1421, uh, released one of the, at least some of the investigative files um, regarding this shooting, as well as this, the court-appointed monitor's report on his, uh, his reaction to the internal investigation and uh, Chief Kirkpatrick's findings, which uh, ultimately actually cleared the officers of wrongdoing. So what it seems like is that we're getting sort of an inside look at this investigation, We're getting to see what the Oakland police chief is finding about the shooting. We're getting to see what the independent monitor of the department finds. Is this, are these things that we would have had access to before 1421? I think that that's a little bit more of a complicated question just because Oakland, because of this uh, federal court oversight, we do see a little bit more of how the sausage is made with Oakland um, as far as their internal affairs processes because of War, uh, the quarter point of monitor Robert Warshaw's reports, which which come out quarterly, if not more often. Um, but this is actually showing more than I think that we would have. It, it there was uh, what's called an executive use of force board, uh, which is um, some high level brass deciding whether officers were in policy or out of policy. Then uh, Chief Kirkpatrick also weighs in in her in her own findings. And then afterwards, uh, Warshaw, the monitor, issued his own report on both the use of force board's findings and Kirkpatrick's. Um, so that part, I think, uh, has has been really illuminating to kind of take a peek inside what goes on in uh, the internal affairs process. So why is SB 1421 capturing so much attention, both from police and activists? Why is it so important? Why since January 1st have we heard so much about it? Yeah, I th- it's because, you know, for the first time in decades, we actually get to uh, see what's behind the curtain, um, at least a little bit with police records. And it's something that I, I think that they, they're they not used to. Um, more than really any other industry, including law, including uh, medicine, um, Anything that, that was recorded in police personnel records almost exclusively was hidden from the public. And I think that activists um, and really the public at large is really interested now because of uh, the political climate. You know, in the, in the last uh, four or five years, there's been an increased uh, 
scrutiny on officer-involved shootings, and I think that there's a public perception that a lot of times uh, police aren't held accountable when these, even in the very bad shootings. And, you know, for better, for better or worse, I think that these transparency laws will actually help improve the trust between public and police. I want to ask you about the California Reporting Project, this collaboration that the Chronicle has joined. What is it and what does it do? So this is a group of more than 30 news organizations, uh, many of them obviously competitors, both in Northern California, Southern California, who are collaborating to really kind of join forces and uh, make these records as public as possible. You know, I think especially for for smaller newsrooms and, you know, even the larger ones like ourselves, um, we all have we all uh, all have uh, other jobs (laughs) other than, you know, trying to track down records from hundreds of agencies. And this is a collaborative sharing process. So, if one news organization requests a record and we didn't or vice versa, uh, we have all agreed to share those reports and to uh, be able to all use them for, uh, for our writing or for our, for our broadcasting. And there's sometimes costs involved, right? Yes, yes. Uh, it, it, it really varies by the agency, but some have been asking for hundreds of dollars. Some have been asking for thousands of dollars. That's kind of a... a different topic, but uh, for for some of these uh, agencies are agreeing to all chip in to get them. Okay. Okay. So Megan, if I have this right, you're waiting for records from a number of different agencies on any given day. Yes. Can you walk us through what one of these looks like when you receive it? Sure. So uh, one record that we received from Fairfield, um, it was pretty brief. It just really provided an index of the, the fuller reports that they said they'll provide in the future. But Um, It was still pretty illuminating. It talked about, uh, for instance, there was um, one officer that there were two cases against him um, involving um, sexual misconduct. Uh, He was investigated for, uh, I think, four different violations of uh, physical advances on victims at a shopping center. Um, And then in a separate case, uh, physical advances on another victim at a golf course. And that guy did get a uh, 20-day suspension, and then he ultimately retired. And these are advances in uniform? Yes. And he retired, and we're just learning about it now because of the law. Right. What do you hope to get out of the California Reporting Project? What do you hope comes of it? Uh, so, you know, in the past couple of months, we have just been getting these reports in piecemeal, and which is fine, and there's a small story each time to tell. Uh, but I think that in a you know as a bigger picture, we are looking to just get a glimpse at like how these tax pa- taxpayer funded agencies are operating. That was Megan Cassidy, uh, staff writer at the Chronicle. We'll see you on the next show. Thanks. Fifth Emission is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. If you like this show, we'd love it if you'd subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've got a minute to give us a quick review, that helps us build our audience so we can keep growing. You can support Fifth and Mission and the newsroom that creates it with a subscription to the San Francisco Chronicle. There are print and digital editions. Find out more at sfchronicle.com slash subscribe.